You're listening to Technically 200, a podcast featuring the stories of amazing Black and Latino women in STEM. This season, in celebration of Hispanic Heritage Month, we are excited to highlight the empowering stories of Latinas in STEM. Stay tuned each week as we feature Latinas from a range of backgrounds within the STEM field, sharing how they've discovered their passions, overcame obstacles, and paved a way for their respective careers as women of color. Welcome back, everybody. We are at episode three of season four with Technically 200, focused on Latinas in STEM in honor of Hispanic Heritage Month. Today, we have our lovely guest, Gabby, with us. Um, I'm so excited to jump into things. I want to first kick it off by allowing Gabby to share with our listeners a little bit about who she is and what it is that she does. Thank you. Uh, So exciting to be here. Um, My name is Gabby. I am currently a human factors engineer working at Abbott. I began my academic journey as a community college student uh, at San Diego City College in California. Uh, And then I eventually got my bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from the University of California, San Diego. Uh, And then eventually I went on to get my master's and PhD also in mechanical engineering from Stanford University. So I've I've done a little bit of moving around and uh, jumping around within STEM, starting, you know, from a very classically uh, trained mechanical engineering background, working for Boeing in aerospace to uh, tissue mechanics and biomechanics, biotechnology to more cell and molecular level work, trying to understand cellular mechanics, basically, and uh, musculoskeletal tissues to now medical device. So I'm excited to be here. That sounds like such an interesting journey. Uh, Also, your educational background, pursuing higher education, I think can inspire many um, who are trying to figure out, you know, initial decisions on what to pursue, uh, what institutions that they need to go to in order to be successful in certain career paths. So I think you'll have some fruitful uh, experience to share with folks. Um, Before we jump into the nitty gritty content for today, uh, I would kind of like to establish um, ourselves in the theme of our season. So would love for you to share a little bit about your ethnic background and how you feel um, like your culture ties into your overall identity. Yeah, that's, I, I really like that question. And it's, I feel it's taken me a while to understand how my cultural identity ties into my professional life in a way. Um, so I was born in Mexico. I spent most of my childhood in Mexico. I I grew up in the border, in the Tijuana-San Diego border. And so I've always felt like border towns are kind of not here nor there. They're their own landscape and their own, you know, their own, they're basically their own bubble. And so I grew up, even though I grew up uh, for the most part on the Mexican side of the border, I spent a lot of my childhood coming back and forth to the U.S. hearing music in English, watching TV in English. So in a way, I was from very early on, I was very immersed in you know, just overall like the broader American culture. So so the, the transition uh, from Mexico to the U.S. for my family didn't happen until I was 17. Uh, my dad had been working in the U.S. for a while by then. And 
when we moved, it wasn't as as shocking as a lot of people uh, always describe, you know, migrating to a new country because I had been very exposed to a lot of these cultural elements. I didn't realize that I was able to speak English fluently enough that I was able to be placed in AP English in high school um, until I moved. And so my experience had always been trying to translate for my mom when we went to the store or when we went to a restaurant, but uh, being fully immersed in uh, a place in a school where I had to speak English all the time, that's when I really realized at 17 that I I had already a lot of that in my in my head. And so so that aspect of um, the move wasn't necessarily difficult, um, but because I spent most of my childhood uh, in my teens in Mexico, I feel like my cultural identity has always been very present. So uh, that's probably different than a lot of people that make the move from a different country younger, uh, earlier on. I know that was uh, something that I saw my sister experience when I was 17, she was uh, eight or nine. And I know that her experience, even though we came from the same family, we moved to the same places, was a lot different than mine. Um, So I think in a way, my upbringing, in a different country, coming here as a teenager in my late teens, uh, kind of uh, just made my cultural identity more present and less conflicting or less confusing in a way, uh, because that's just how I was and where I had been up until that point. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What would you say it was like growing up um, in Mexico, especially in the realm of education? Like, were you always interested in STEM? What role did education play in your household? Because I, and I ask that because I feel like here, even thinking about college, you know, we're always pushing students to think about extracurriculars, think about your involvement, you know, be prepared early on beyond senior year. So coming to the States, you know, late in your team, I'm just curious if you kind of already had that preparation going, if maybe you had that familial support. Or was it new for you during that move? So in uh, in my family, I always, I always, we always looked at college not not as a as a as an option, but kind of as just the progression, like what happens after this. So just as I knew that after middle school, I had to go to high school, I kind of had this idea that after high school, I had to go to college. And I don't really know exactly what my parents told us to make us believe that, but that's kind of just the the talk around the house. And so that's what we always saw that it, it was never, it was never, there was never a doubt. Uh, my parents, uh, they both had a chance to go to college in Mexico, but neither, neither of them graduated. So uh, they did not get college degrees. And I think probably because of that, because they did not have a college degree, they really try to instill that in in their children uh, that college degrees were very important and they could be a stepping stone for success. Uh, there was only so much you could do, so many jobs you could take if you did not have a college degree. Um, so, so we were kind of very well aware of that. Uh, just my mom didn't work until we started. Uh, until I was 
probably 14 or 15. So I grew up in a a household with a stay-at-home mom for the most part. My dad had a lot of jobs, different kinds of jobs. Um, And so we would see him struggle from time to time uh, when, you know, for whatever reason, wherever he was working at, he would be laid off and then he had to go start again somewhere else. And so, so that I think seeing that uh, early on as a child, um, it just reinforced that idea that with a college degree, maybe I would have more security and I would have more certainty. I'll have more control of the kinds of jobs I can do and the kinds of things I can work on. And so that was a big motivator, just seeing, basically seeing my dad struggle. Um, and so, so my family always, they always told us about real education was very important. So we weren't allowed to know have jobs or go play until we were done with our homework and I don't think my mom actually ever checked their homework it was just that (laughs) fear that she instilled that somehow she would know that we didn't do our homework but when we said we're done she wouldn't go check it or go question what we did it was just an assumption that we weren't lying (laughs) and so so education was important and uh and in Mexico, at least in the places that I went to school, we didn't have a lot of extracurricular activities um, or, you know, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on volunteering or, you know, all these other types of uh, prep that goes on here in the U.S. But I kind of knew about it. And this was just whatever... Uh, Whatever I would learn from movies, basically, any like any kind of movie where there was a high school student, you knew that they were president of the debate club where they were playing sports or they were part of the math club. And so all of those things I remember, uh, I remember being very present when we moved. And so when I moved uh, from Mexico to the U.S., uh, I was kind of looking for those experiences and I was eager to try and not only for uh, college preparation, but also because it felt like it was part of the American experience that I had to join all these clubs and I had to go all these things. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And it's so interesting how that's ingrained in our like entertainment and like <laughs> media culture of like, it's, you know, through social media platforms. I mean, now we have TikTok, so I'm sure that the kids all over the world are learning about things like that as well. But yeah, for movies, it's the traditional films that we've seen growing up. So you, you talked a little bit about kind of knowing that that was the natural progression, some of the things that you inherently needed to do to pursue higher education once you did get to the States. Um, tell me more about the experience deciding to go to community college from high school and then the role that STEM played in that. So like how you felt prepared to then pursue um, a STEM major uh, moving to an undergraduate institution and then a, a postgraduate institution in like Stanford, which is huge. <laughs> yeah, so that, it was, it was a, I wouldn't say that it was a conscious decision, but uh, it just happened to be, I felt the only decision that made sense at the time. Uh, so when I moved from Mexico, I, I did a lot of my high school classes in Mexico. And so there was this whole equivalency uh, of like curses that had to be done and see you know, what classes did she fulfill when she was in school over there and what classes did she still need to take. So I do remember there was a, early on, there was a uh, conversation with one of my counselors about 
how in order to get into any four-year school, and I actually now, I'm not 100% sure this information was completely accurate. I'm sure that if I had known more or if I had had maybe other people to guide me, I might have been able to find a place where I would have been able to go in right away. But the information that I got when I first started was that no school, no four-year university would accept me without four years of English from an American high school, which I know is not true because I know a lot of people that come from other countries to college in the U.S. and they're still able to go to college. And so I was told nobody's going to accept you because you have to do four years of English. Um, and so one of the options that they gave me was you could try go to adult school and make up those classes that you didn't have uh, so that you can have them in time to show up on your transcript. Uh, but the problem was that by the time that conversation happened, it was also the time of applications, college applications. So then they said, you might be able to do this, but there's definitely not a chance you can do that in time to submit an application on this cycle to start next year. And the thought of having a gap year terrorized me because I thought that was like, there was like, no, that was not like, that was not my plan. My plan had always been, you go to high school and then you go to college. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this extra year? I'm going to get lost. It's going to be the worst. I'm not going to make it. So it was, it probably wouldn't have been as bad as I thought at, at the time that it would be. But to me, that thought of taking a gap year was just unthinkable. And so my counselor probably saw me freaking out when she was telling me that I couldn't apply to college. And then she said, but it's not, it's not the worst. You don't have to just, because I remember I probably said something about how I was going to have to go find a job and I was going to have to work and I was not going to be able to go to college. And so uh, they said, no, you, you don't have to necessarily quit or stop going to school. There's other systems that um, you can join. And so I had never heard of community colleges. Community colleges was not something that showed up in the movies that I watched when I was younger. <laughs> so I did not know anything about the community college system. And so they told me, uh, you can start a community college, take a lot of your general ed classes. And then after a couple of years, you can transfer into basically any four-year institution and just finish your upper division courses. And so uh, when I was reading about it or asking more questions about it, in my situation, it also felt like it made a lot of sense from a financial standpoint. Uh, so my family, I mean, my dad was the only one that worked at the time. Uh, we had just made the move from, uh, from Mexico to the U.S. And so we were still trying to like learn how to live with his salary. But now uh, in the U.S. and not in Mexico, which was a big, uh, it's a big difference. And so... So going to community college just seemed to be the right choice uh, because it was, it could we could uh, spend less money on it. Uh, I could it was was providing me a chance to go to school right away uh, and not take any gap years. I could make progress towards my long term goal of getting a degree. Um, so it just made sense. And so there was a community college that was two blocks away from my where we lived at the time. I could have walked. It was probably a 10-minute walk and I would have been there. And that was the community college that I was going to go. Uh, but then I had a friend 
from high school in Mexico that was going to also try to go to community college to learn some English. But he wanted to learn. Uh, we live closer to the border. So he wanted to go to a school that was further away in downtown San Diego. And he asked me if I could come along when he was going to go ask for information uh, because he thought I could translate for him. And I said, sure, I'll go. And so I went. And the moment I stepped foot in that uh, college campus, I remember I called my mom and I was like, you remember how it's going to go to this other school? I'm not. I'm going to go to this one. <laughs> and my mom was very confused about it because it was further away. I either needed uh, to take public transit or get a car. But I told her there was something about that place that as soon as I walked in, I just felt that I had to be there. Uh, and I really don't know how to explain it other than it was like gut feeling that it's happened a couple other times too when I've had to make big life altering decisions like where to go to grad school. But there's just, I don't know, there's just something about it when you have a strong connection for whatever reason to a place. It's harder to justify why you should not be able to go or why you shouldn't go there. And so that's kind of how it felt when I went there. And so that's how I ended up deciding to go to uh, San Diego City College, which was this Pacific community college that I went to in San Diego. And so, yeah, the 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 preparation that I had there was just... Uh, super incredible. So the community college just had a lot of resources for me. And of course, um, I think a lot of people go to places that have access to these resources, but you also have to be very proactive about seeking out the things that you need. And so I remember hearing about the MESA program, the Mathematics, Engineering, and Science Shipment Program. And I thought, well, I want to be an engineer. And so it seems like I should go there and ask about this program. So I went, I joined. And so it just, uh, little things like that, that it always at the time felt like very small steps or sometimes it felt like extra work because now I had to go do more workshops, go have an extra session with the counselor, uh, but I think those were the steps that helped me uh, put me in the right track uh, in terms of the rest of my career, because what uh, programs like the Mesa program did for me was open up a door of possibilities, uh, a network of people that I would have never interacted with. And so even though I was very certain in my goal of finishing my degree, going to school. Um, I didn't really know people that had made it. I didn't know any other engineers. I didn't know anyone that had come to school in the U.S. I didn't know anyone that had financed their own education. And so just having the access to, to those uh, resources and those peers and those mentors was life-changing. I love how you kind of saw that, you know, something special about that institution. And that was the door that opened up for you to kind of immerse yourself in that network and in that space that had the resources to help kind of catapult you forward into your, your future endeavors. Um, one thing you also mentioned that made me realize is that it's really important for us to, in our culture and today's society, to normally normalize alternative pathways and like how much that is missing from our overarching mainstream media. But um, <laughs> a, a theme that stands out to me in uh, your own, like I, I get a sense of like, and I think we've mentioned this before in past conversations, like a sense of independence. So like 
you kind of had this intrinsic motivation happening for you um, to pursue these things and go after, uh, you know, parts of your education and, you know, even in the journey migrating to the U.S. that were going to set you up for success. So I'm curious if you feel, was that an intrinsic thing for you? Like, especially thinking about our young people today, was that an intrinsic thing for you? Or do you feel like maybe it, it was just kind of how you were raised or, yeah, what, what helped you develop that? that kind of skill set, that soft skill set? That, that's a good question. I haven't really thought about it that much. I, I think there's definitely some aspect of it that it's intrinsic. Um, and I'm sure part of it is that I'm the oldest. And so I had to learn a lot of things. And I had, I always felt this responsibility for helping around the house, for example, with my younger siblings. And I did not grow up in a household where my mom expected me to do a lot of that on my own, but I'm not really sure what made me uh, just take on that responsibility and, and have that extra burden on my shoulders. I know my brother never had it. He didn't care. <laughs> He's a little younger than me. Uh, but, but so, so I had, I had this I always had this strong sense of independence and just wanting to figure things out on my own and to do things on my own. And so, I mean, even in school, I remember, I think part of what drew me initially to a career, a career in STEM uh, was that I would really enjoy solving problems. And so whenever in physics or math, we had a problem set, uh, just like the process of solving problems was very rewarding to me. And I always took a lot of pride in being able to figure things out when other people couldn't figure it out. And not, not for the sake of just saying, I know this, but you don't, but because then I got a chance to teach other people. And that was one of the things I enjoyed most. I remember from like my uh, pre-college years that my teachers would often task me with teaching my classmates whenever they couldn't figure out problems. And so I would have, like, I would basically, they would basically set up my desk as this, like, alternate tutor space where if there was a long line to go ask our teacher something, then people would start lining up on my desk because they knew that I could explain things. And that was very rewarding, this process of uh, figuring things out, but then being able to share it with others, I enjoyed a lot. And so, uh, so yeah, I think it's partly that like being the being the oldest, uh, but also just this, you know, thriving in this environment of figuring things out that really made me uh, independent. And and like you said, I think that does carry over to multiple aspects of my life that went that was the case when you know when we came to the US and my dad I remember he was really overwhelmed trying to figure out how he was going to afford paying for attorney fees to get our uh paperwork immigration paperwork in order and I remember telling him we'll figure it out don't worry about it let me I'm going to pull out the computer and we're going to look it up and I remember Looking up online as a 17-year-old, uh, looking up online, you know, what do we need to submit my paperwork for residency and, uh, and calculating the fees and then telling my dad, look, 
I did. I looked it up online. This is how much it would cost. The attorney was uh, basically charging you three times more. So you can definitely, we can definitely make it work if we do it on our own. And I don't know why my dad trusted me <laughs> because when I think about this as a 17 year old, I would have been like, oh, maybe I'll go with the attorney that has, that does this for a living. But my dad trusted me. And he was like, if you're sure this is the way to go, let's let's do that. And and I mean, it worked out. Our paperwork got all sorted out. And uh, but things like that, I think, is not. I just never realized until much later that it's not. Not everybody goes about things like that in this way. Uh, and so I guess I've never. I mean, that's kind of set me up for living a life where I truly feel like I've never. I've never walked away from a challenge and I've never I've never walked away from a challenge because I think, oh, this is too hard. I'm not I'm not gonna be able to figure out how to make this. Speaking of not walking away from challenges, you shared with us a little bit about how you pursued career path in mechanical engineering, but also kind of having some medical background, which are two pretty rigorous fields. So both very challenging. Uh, you know, and then thinking about, you know, the students who even start off with those majors and we think about um, attrition rates and things within the STEM field. So you were able to be successful and have career opportunities and opportunities in the field of academia um, focus on both. So share with us a little bit about kind of where your areas of interest were during that time as you continue to progress your higher education journey and kind of what has led you to the career path you're at now. Yeah, so... I think a lot of my career interests have just happened uh, very spontaneously in a way. <laughs> um, I started my, when I started uh, my college journey, I was very confused about, I mean, I was, I was very certain that I wanted to be an engineer and that I wanted to pursue engineering. But once I started college and I had to narrow down, engineering is a broad term. There's a lot of different uh, fields within engineering. And so I remember once I started having to think about how to narrow down my interest was very difficult uh, for me. I, I, didn't, I didn't grow up thinking this is like, I would love working with bridges. Like a lot of people that I know going civil engineering would have said, like would always say, I would see a bridge and I would just say one day I'm going to design my own bridges. Like I, that never happened to me. I never, I never really had an interest in breaking up like electronics or my computer. Like I had classmates that would spend hours putting their computers apart and then putting them back together. Like I never did any of that. <laughs> and so I, I had a I had very uh, difficult time narrowing down my interest. And so I remember uh, starting at community college thinking, well, I have a couple of years to decide because um, the good thing about engineering is that most engineering disciplines start from the same fundamental concept. So I have at least a year and a half of very fundamental basic classes and then eventually I can move in uh, to whatever like branch of engineering I really want to pursue. When those, uh, that year and a half, two years passed, I was still very confused and I still didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I remember uh, when it came down to deciding, 
I had very strong feelings for bioengineering and aerospace engineering. And there were different things about those two disciplines that interest me. Um, so I was very, um, very interested in like space exploration and shuttles. And so aerospace made a lot of sense. But I'd always been very interested in just clinical health. Uh, and I never wanted, I've never once wanted to be a medical doctor. Uh, and I often think about it because I don't have a good logical reason other than I just knew a lot of people that wanted to be medical doctors. And maybe that's why I didn't want to do it because a lot of people that I knew would always say they wanted to be that. And I thought, no, I'm different. I have to be something else. <laughs> but I was interested in in that field, I guess, uh, in general. And so when I had to declare a major, when I transferred to UC San Diego, I thought, I'm not ready to declare a major yet. So I'm going to pick something that it's kind of in between aerospace and bioengineering. And that was, to me, mechanical engineering. And so I thought, this is kind of just a placeholder. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this on paper so that my school is not on my back telling me that I have to declare a major. Uh, but this will give me a little bit more time to really decide if I want to go one way or the other. Uh, but eventually, that's exactly why I ended up never switching my major, that it was kind of in, somewhere in between. And so I, the more classes I took in mechanical engineering, the more I realized that it really felt like I was in the middle and I could branch out in any direction from a mechanical engineering perspective. and so. So I really enjoy that. And that is still one of the things that I love most about the career that I ended up pursuing. And I feel that that's evidence in the things that I've done in industry and in academia, uh, because it's all stemmed from that same degree with the same training. And I just been able to apply that in different contexts. And so when I graduated college, I had this opportunity uh, to work at Boeing as a stress analysis engineer uh, in the 747-8, which is that big airplane that has the, the hump <laughs> in the middle. It's a two-story airplane. Uh, and I, I, I jumped at that opportunity because I remember thinking, wow, it was meant to be. I was always interested in aerospace. So it only makes sense that I would go join a company in the aerospace industry. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot. And I really thought I was going to end up doing aerospace uh, engineering for the rest of my career. Uh, but then when I decided to pursue graduate school, I happened to come across uh, a laboratory that was doing biological testing uh, of cartilage uh, specimens, like the cartilage from the knee. I think this was cow cartilage. There's this tiny little pieces of uh, material that were being tested on a load frame, which is just the same type of device that you would use to test a composite or a piece of steel or any piece of metal that would go in an aerospace, uh, in an aerospace structure. So I remember looking at that test and being really blown away by how you can, in theory, apply the same mechanical principles to a biological specimen and just the thought of, that biological specimen having cells and being able to respond in real time to the stimulus that you were providing just made it a more exciting problem because you don't have something that's inert that it's said that is not changing. And so I couldn't really 
shake off that excitement. And so that's kind of what I ended up pursuing after that. So I, I kind of just took a little pivot from aerospace to go pursue this more uh, biology-based uh, application, uh, still using my mechanical engineering background. And, uh, and yeah, so that's kind of how that move happened. But I, and I think the 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 commonality between the the pivots that I've had in my career is that I've always been I've never been closed to new opportunities, and so sometimes I'm not looking for something, but when an opportunity comes up and it's something that I never expected, I'm not. I've always attributed this to the fact that I didn't have a set career path in mind when I started because I didn't have any examples. Uh, and so because of that, to me, it has always been okay to switch directions and move around because after like after college, like like my goal had always been go to college. And then once I made it to college, it's like, it's an open field. <laughs> Everything is possible. There's no plan. <laughs> and so... Everything after that has just been uh, just a blank space. And so I think coming in, that I feel has always been an advantage. Uh, seeing a first-generation uh, student, first-generation immigrant, that there's no set path. So I always felt a little bad about my brother and my sister that came after me because then their blank space was not as blank anymore because someone else had filled in some details for them. And I know the pressure that they had was different than the pressure that I had. Um, and I'm sure that's true for uh, other people that have more uh, examples and more uh, sometimes like more, more guidance from parents or uncles or aunts or cousins or other people. So to me, that was one of the advantages that in terms of my career trajectory that I've just been able to do what I want because there's there hasn't been anybody that has said, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. You should be set on your career goals by the time you're whatever age or you're at whatever stage. And so even now when, uh, you know, the opportunity to join Abbott as a human factors engineer came up, I if I had read the description of my job on paper and I had had any other type of personality, I would have probably said, no, I can't do that. That's nothing like what I've done in the last 10 years. But I remember looking at the description and thinking, oh, that looks like something I could learn. And that's, that sounds, that's definitely something I've never done. So it's something that I'll definitely, that'll be a challenge to get started. And it was something that was very exciting for me, that just being able, I felt very confident in my skills, but being able to learn a new application. Um, there's this, this theme of like, um, you recognizing that there's going to be a challenge or a problem and a new opportunity and the spark of excitement that you're like, I kind of knew that was the direction I'm going to head. <laughs> and because and it was right for me because there was a bigger problem to solve for, you know, I was able to recognize that I got excited about this opportunity, which I think is really cool and can speak to our listeners too. And like recognizing what are the, the elements in an opportunity that are really going to kind of um, you know, set you on fire to go after that opportunity and like, you know, spark that excitement for you to continue down, you know, the career path trajectory or maybe an alternative path um, that you never really knew you might be interested in. So um, I think that's great for folks to hear. 
Uh, one thing you haven't mentioned that I think is important, especially with um, us talking about Latinas in STEM and, and women of color um, with the overarching theme of technically 200, what is it like being a woman of color and a Latina in your field? And have you found spaces or historically been able to find spaces in the environments you've worked in, studied in, that offered a sense of belonging and community for you? That, that's a great question. That has been uh, finding, finding a, a, a place uh, or a group of people that create a sense of belonging for me has been something that has been extremely important, uh, I think, in shaping my success. But it has also been a very conscious effort that I knew, I knew very early on that I was going to have a hard time finding people like me um, everywhere I went. And so I always had, uh, I always had it in the back of my mind that if I wanted to find a place where I felt that I belong and that I was comfortable in, I had to go find it. Like it wasn't going to come to me. So it's always been a very, uh, a very thoughtful uh, process and a very thoughtful decision. Sometimes at different stages of my career, it's been harder than others. So when I started at community college, the Mesa program provided a lot of that for me without me thinking about it. And I think that's where I realized that it was going to be more difficult as I moved on and there were less programs like that, less people like me uh, that I was going to be able to find that so easily. And it just, it didn't mean that it's not there or that it doesn't exist. It just meant that I had to spend more time and effort uh, finding those places. And so I've always, I've always relied on my, on my, on my community, my group. Uh, so my tribe, <laughs> we always like to say, uh, because it's just so important and it's important. And it's not, I think, when I started, that was my classmates, like the people that I would sit and study with and do problems with and would have my back when I didn't understand something and and vice versa. Uh, eventually, I think as our careers evolved and we started, you know, pursuing our very specific disciplines, it was, of course, harder and harder to find. But having those people meant that you had someone that you can talk to when you're having a problem that will help you snap out of it and say, yeah, you have a problem, we'll figure it out. And and that's and that that network of support I've carried with me since my days uh after the community college. I mean, some of my closest peers now that I turn to for support are friends that I made at the community college that we all pursued different careers. We all went to different universities. We're all doing different things. But they're the people that even now, like all these years later, are the ones that I know I can send a quick text and a quick a quick phone call and say, this is a problem that I have and I know that they'll help me. They'll either help me figure it out or they'll be there to just listen to me vent and I know that they'll understand. And so, and that's very important, I think, for for preserving your mental health in environments of high stress, but also for giving you perspective of know the things that you have accomplished and yes whenever you have a problem sometimes it feels like maybe maybe this is it maybe this is where it ends uh 
when it's always good to have that perspective of the people that know you, that have seen you struggle before and remind you, you've gone through struggles like this before and you made it before. There's no, why do you think you're not going to make it now? And so, so that's been important. Um, it's, I think the, the further, I remember hearing this when I was a lot younger, that the further high, like the higher up you go, the less, like the, it starts looking like a pyramid. And so like the less people you see like you, and that's a hundred percent true. Uh, it is like the higher up you go, the more difficult it is to find people, uh, that you can identify yourself with. In my case, like Latinas that are engineers with higher degrees. Um, so I, I think at some point in my graduate degree, um, I realized that I there's always opportunities to learn uh, if you open up yourself to the possibility. And so that was the first time that I ever thought about how having a mentor that was not necessarily a Latina engineer might be beneficial to me. And so opening up that uh, like that door for uh, other kinds of mentors, like mentorship outside of what I always thought this is the mentor that I need I need to see another Latin engineer that will tell me how she made it so then I'll know how to make it so once I realized you can you can't always have another Latin engineer when you have a PhD and you work and like you're working in industries that are such limited access to people that look like you and so so making that switch of okay I'm gonna take the few mentors that I have and I'll make the best like I'll learn from everyone, different skills, different things. And I will try to continue being this person that I wish I had, like that I could see ahead of me. I'll try to be that for someone that's coming right behind me. And so, so maybe I won't be able to find someone that looks like me, but somebody else will be able to find me in the position that I'm currently in. And that's been a very, like a, an important driving factor. But I would say, uh, for sure, the community that I've built over the years, even though the people, like there's people that are not in the same discipline and the same, the same field or even the same geographical location, but uh, just the people that I know are always in my corner. And some of them, like I said, come back from, you know, studying together in the Mesa program, the community college. Oh, that speaks to so much. Uh, I think maintaining networks, even if, like you said, even if they're not in the same discipline, career path, but, you know, that tribe of support that's supporting you as an individual, as a, as a person. And then, you know, recognizing that within your field, that more technical support and mentorship, you know, maybe it's not going to always be the person who understands exactly what your experience has been, but finding value in that. I think that's an awesome message for especially the young people that we support as well. I mean, we have mentorship programs and, and such at Coat to College. And I think, you know, as we find as well, they get through college, they progress through our phases of mentorship, you know, the access to um, professionals um, and executives in the field is limited when we're trying to match them with maybe, uh, you know, a Black or Latina young woman. And so, you know, I think it's important to recognize that everyone has a story to offer and there's plenty to learn from that. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, I want to pick your brain a little bit. 
uh, just thinking about having been in the academic space um, now um, with more corporate uh, STEM-focused companies, are there things that come to mind that you think these spaces or work environments could do to be more inclusive of people of color or specifically Latina women, um, just coming from your experience? Yeah, I think I think a lot of, I mean, every place that I've been to, in a way, I feel feel fortunate that at least there's been some level of conversation about diversity, diversity and inclusion. Uh, but what I think, what I think, what I see as a problem is that typically we think about it when, you know, you're, you're in a company or you're leading a group and you say, oh, I would really like to have a more diverse group. Let's, we're going to do a search and we're going to recruit someone. And then you're trying to recruit someone and then you say, oh, our, our pool of applicants is so limited. So what I feel a lot of companies have failed to address is that you can't find people, uh, like, there's only so many people you can find at a certain level, but you really have to think about it as a long-term investment and what can you do to get people to this position and how, like, what is your role getting, basically tapping into the pipeline earlier so that you're able to help people get to where they need to get. And so part of it has been, you know, providing resources to do more outreach programs since you're in high school there's a lot of research that shows that kids like starting in kindergarten I think already have like a disdain for math or as like they're they're afraid of math even though they've never taken a math class so when you think about those things like this problem like it's a very systematic problem that starts very early on and part of it is representation part of it is lack of resources and access but there's a lot of companies that have funding that could, you know, help uh, at least bridge a little bit the gap uh, and, you know, allowing people to participate or providing the space for their employees to participate in more, you know, outreach programs that start not just at college, but like much, much earlier on. And so I think that is an important uh, piece, in my opinion, that is needed. I think understanding that uh, this is, uh, I mean, it's been true in my case and a lot of people that I know, uh, having, I don't want to call it the burden, but because I don't really feel that being an underrepresented minority is a burden, but sometimes it feels like it because compared to your peers uh, that have had more established life, more like financial support from family. It's different than when you're the oldest in your family and you're the one that made it out. You're the one that could provide uh, some support. And sometimes that plays along in your the decisions that you take that it's not just you and your career, but it's your family and the things that your family needs. And sometimes that leads to paths that are different or are non-standard and so when companies are recruiting people sometimes they like to see this very straight line of like you did this and this and this and this and then if you have this one like couple of years experience of and I think this is also true in academia not just in industry 
Uh, if you have this like couple of years where you went and did something that at least in paper as a reader makes no sense to you, there might be a very valid reason for why that person had to choose that position or that career. And it might have not nothing to do with their ability, with their, uh, you know, how they perform a job. It, was, it might have to do with something that's more personal. And so I think being open to this alternate career paths and directions, it's going to open up the door uh, to a lot of very qualified people that might be uh, getting missed from like uh, recruitment opportunities because they don't fit the mold or they don't have the standard path. I mean, the same way like standardized testing uh, that there's like no standardized test that really can measure your success, like your ability to succeed in a program. Uh, I don't really know who came up with the idea of standardized tests or why more programs haven't gotten rid of them. <laughs> but I think more research shows that it really is not an important marker in determining your success in any stage of your career, like whether it's the SAT going into college or the GRE going into grad school or the MCAT if you're going to med school. And so I think a lot of programs are starting to realize that having those like test scores is a, it's kind of an obstacle in being able to broaden up your pool of applicants because it really limits your choices to a very specific group of people that tend to do good in those tests. And if you have anyone that doesn't do good in the test, gets excluded from the pool of applicants, but that person might be a great fit for a program or a great fit for a department with a lot of chances for success. And so it takes some effort for people that have the power to make those changes to, you know, to say we're going to do things different and a lot of people are going to question why, but, but we have to do it. And I think if more programs and more uh, companies approach recruiting like that in a more open, like if they if they figure out a way to remove some of their uh, expectations and and biases for what does a successful person look like, they might realize that success takes many shapes and forms. That was so insightful, Gabby. I think it, it speaks one to who you are. I think in the realm of this of your career path and experience and, and how you've shown up in these spaces. But I it also spoke, um, I think, just overarching about the communities of people that can, you know, that are ready and willing to integrate into these spaces and offer something often probably innovative and new perspectives that can really benefit these companies and institutions. Um, and again, going back to that alternative pathways conversation, the importance of that and creating pipelines that will set people up to be successful and not just, you know, make sure that the companies are getting the outcomes that they needed. It's a definitely a reciprocal investment. So I think it's super important for folks to realize. Um, I want to wrap up. I think this conversation has been super fruitful, um, but I'd love to wrap up and ask, if you were mentoring your younger self, what would you tell her or what would you teach her? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. It's a hard question. I'm, I'm not sure exactly why what I could advise myself, my younger self, because I still haven't figured out how to advise my current self about this. <laughs> but um, I think if I could figure out a way to 
even even as open as I as I look or I might come across to new opportunities and you know just new challenges, it is hard to put yourself in that position. And I think whenever there's been a time of change or a pivot, there's always a, a bit of uncertainty. So it's like this weird mixture of like excitement and joy, but also uncertainty and anxious, like stress, like caused by like anxiety from, you know, am I, am I going to figure this out? Is this the right fit? Should I stay doing what I'm doing? Should I move? Should I, I know there's always a lot of what ifs. And so I think if I could figure out the words to tell my younger self that it doesn't matter what I decide, things will work themselves out. <laughs> I know it just sounds like it always sounds like such an abstract thing and advice, but but it is kind of true in the sense that whatever anxiety you have might go away and then they will get replaced by new kinds of anxieties about new kinds of problems. So that's never going away. Uh, and so it's better to just, you know, move on from that and not let that take away from the joy and the excitement of the new things that we're doing. I think the other thing I would advise myself or I would tell myself is that to not minimize the things that I've done. Uh, so I think one of the big challenges that I've faced um very early on is that once I figure how to do something or once I think I've I've made it to something, my brain transitions into, oh, well, this is now easy in a way, even though it's not necessarily easy, but it just feels like I already solved that puzzle. So if I solve that puzzle, how difficult can it be for somebody else to solve this puzzle? And that's not true uh, at all. That's uh, not true for everyone. And it's even not true if you wanted to solve the puzzle yourself again. And so, so having a chance to remind myself that I've done some pretty impressive things with my career and my trajectory. And, and basically like remind yourself that, you know, at whatever stage you are, your accomplishments need to be celebrated. And, you know, you've gone You've come so far, so much further than anyone thought you ever would. I mean, not everyone. There's a lot of people that I think thought that I would make it really far. But but I also think about the people that I'm convinced didn't think I was going to make it really far. Um, and how I have made it really far. And it might not be at all like what I thought I would be doing 10 years ago. But I'm doing some really amazing things. And so... So just keeping that perspective of, you know, I've overcome a lot of challenges. I've had many successes. And even though you keep finding challenges, that doesn't take away from the challenges that you've already overcome or succeeded at. I think you were talking to your younger self, Gabby, but you were definitely conscious of <laughs> many of the other listeners. I feel like that was very um, encouraging. And, and really, truly, what this podcast is all about, you know, we want to share stories that are going to be encouraging and, and motivating for young women and just, you know, women in general within the STEM field that can see themselves and the resemblance of some of these stories and some of the backgrounds of the guests that we have. So... 
I appreciate you so much for sharing um, some insight into your background and story today, Gabby. Thanks again for listening to today's Technically 200 episode. Don't forget to subscribe and visit us at technically200.com.